hi. Uh, hello, Dr. Catherine Jenkins. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Hi. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Yeah. Um, so as a first question, we would like to know what have you been working on? And more specifically, I know last time you were here, um, you talked about gender and social categories. Has your understanding of those two things changed since we last spoke? Wow. So when we last spoke, I was in the thick of writing a book. Uh, the book is called Ontology and Oppression, Race, Gender and Social Reality. And excitingly, or excitingly for me at least, uh, it's now been published. It's published um, a couple of months ago in the US and this month in the UK with Oxford University Press. And it's my first academic monograph. It's my first, well, it's my first book of any kind, actually, but it is an academic monograph. That's the type of book it is. And um, I'm really pleased that it's out. And honestly, I'm not sure at exactly what point in my thinking I was when um, when we last spoke, but my thinking on social categories has certainly changed quite a lot over the period kind of that I was writing the book. Um, I used to think that with categories, with a category like gender, for example, we might need maybe two ways of thinking about what gender is. Um, as I wrote the book, uh, that kind of exploded a bit. And I ended up being of the opinion that if we want to get a handle on gender and race as kind of categories in our lives, then the best thing to do is to think of them as not being one category, but as each being many categories. So if we say of me um, that I'm a woman, for example, that's how I identify, that's how most people read me. I, on, on the view that I've arrived at, there's not one category that I belong to, woman, and that's what it is for me to be a woman. There's actually lots of different social categories. Um, and when we're talking about, you know, if we say something like Catherine is a woman, then it really depends, you know, why we're saying that and what we're interested in um, discussing or finding out about which of those categories we want to be talking about. Um, so yeah, the, the evolution of my thought on social categories has been that I used to think they were a bit complicated and there might be like more of them than we think. And now I think they're very complicated and there's way more of them than we tend to think. Um, so that's been a fun ride. Well, you say you went from thinking that it's, it's sort of a binary thing to a, a multitude of things. Um, so what do, what, what do these many more social categories um, that you now think there are depend on? What sort of determines whether you're a woman or what kind of woman um, you are? That's, that's a great question. And there's sort of two ways to answer it. So I'll kind of answer it both ways and, and then hopefully you can see how they fit together. So the first way to answer it is to say, is to give you some examples of the different things that I think that gender categories um, are, or sort of categories kind of loosely in the vicinity of our talk of gender. Um, you might end up wanting to say that only some of them count as really being gender, um, but I'll, I'll leave that aside for now. But in, in, the, in the kind of realm of what we're talking about when we talk about gender, I think one category that's there that I've, I've thought was there all along is something like identity. So I have a sense of myself as a woman. Um, I kind of make sense of the social world as I encounter it kind of via thinking of myself as a woman. If someone says um, women should shave their armpits, I feel like they mean me. I might not do it, but I feel like they mean me. Um, and, and so I think there's something that is having a sense of oneself as gendered, as having a gender identity. I think that's part of what gender is. But um, the other thing that, I've, that I used to think and still think is part of, of what gender is, is um, 
like a position in a social structure. So there's this kind of way that the world gets organized so that there's kind of patterns that people's lives more often tend to follow if they're seen as as a woman, if they're seen especially as having kind of female bodily features or bodily features we usually think of as female. Um, so if you think about something like the gender pay gap, right, then that would be an example of a, a consequence of a kind of system of social organization that kind of means that like stuff goes differently um, depending on whether you're perceived as male or female broadly, you know, roughly speaking. So the gender as a kind of position in a social structure. Um, I think a hierarchical social structure, you know, an unequal social structure. So those are two things I thought gender was all along. Here's a third thing I now think gender, you know, a third type of category, I think, that we should um, sort of recognize as, as existing, as being in the mix. And this, and here I'm very much inspired by the work of the philosopher Auster, the Icelandic philosopher Auster, if anyone wants to look that up, that's like A with an accent, S-T-A, um, in her book, Categories We Live By. And Auster kind of draws our attention to the ways that sort of what it is to be gendered really depends on kind of what space you're in and who you're with. So I could be in like, I don't know, a party with my friends and being a woman there means kind of one thing and people have assumptions about me because they read me as a woman they have a certain kind of assumptions and then I could go to like a um, a workspace or a family gathering and there could be really different assumptions in play um, for me I tend to be gendered as a woman by people in lots of different contexts my gender itself doesn't change um, very much from context to context but, you know, for somebody else, that might not be the case. So it might be that you're, you know, read as and treated as non-binary when you're with your friends, but when you're in a, a, another context that um, doesn't recognize your identity in the same way, you're read and treated as a man, say. So um, what I think Alistair really draws our attention to is that the options for what gender you can have um, and kind of what expectations and kind of assumptions that brings with it uh, very much depends on kind of where you are and who you're with. And I think that idea of gender as a kind of localized social status in a particular context, how are people gendering you in that space and what um, what does that impose on you? That's something that I, I now think is in the mix that I hadn't you know thought of previously. Um, and what that does is that really explodes things because you know, you might think that I have like one gender identity. Some people might feel like they have more, but I guess I do feel like my gender identity is something that does kind of follow me from context to context. And I think logically, if you're thinking of gender as a position in a social structure, um, well, maybe not logically, but it kind of makes sense there to think that you might just have one gender. Like what is my position in this big overall kind of macro scale social structure? Um, but this idea of gender as a social status in a particular context that changes all the time, right? Depending on where you are and who you're with. So I don't just have one thing that's my like social status gender. I have loads at different times and places. And that's where I think the categories really explode. So that's one way of answering your question. You know, what do I think these different categories are? Is I think, you know, there's three things. There are three things, one of them contains many things and there might be others in between that I haven't talked about. But there's a different way of answering your question, which is that I think there's a level on which I can say the same thing about all of these different types of gender categories. Because in each case, I think what it consists of to have that gender is that you are constrained and enabled socially in a particular characteristic way. 
So I think that the idea of the way that you're socially constrained and enabled functions as a kind of common denominator between all three of these senses of gender, gender as identity, gender as a structural role, and gender as a social status in a particular context. I think in each case, what that boils, or I want to argue, and I do argue in the book, that what that really boils down to, like being in that gender category, is that there's stuff that's harder for you to do, and there's stuff that's easier for you to do, and that sort of follows a pattern that you share that pattern with the other people in that category. Um, yeah, I can say more about that, but that's the general idea. And that's one of the innovations in the book, I, I, as I as I kind of want to suggest, that there is there is this nice common denominator, which sort of, uh, I think is a good thing, because otherwise the picture is just very messy. Talking about this common denominator of being constrained and enabled in a specific way, depending on like what kind of, you know, gender um, you're in. How can we talk about how different these constraints and enablements are? Like, what are the variables you would use to um, describe those um, differences? Yeah, thanks. So um, there's kind of three. Yeah. So the way I want what we need is a way to, as your question um, suggests, is that we need a way to kind of get a handle on this. So if I say, you know, what um, gender identity I have is a matter of how I'm constrained and enabled in certain ways, then, you know, the question is like, well, what ways and how do we get a handle on specifying that? And I think there's basically three variables at play. Um, and here we're now going to test how well I can remember my own book, because honestly, you kind of writing it, you're kind of living and breathing it. It's like kind of in your head all the time. And then at least in my case, I kind of sent it off and to be published. And I was like, phew. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. But the first one is, um, is scope. So this is what context we're in. So the best way to see this is the contrast between the idea of gender as a structural role and gender as a kind of a social status uh, in a context. So with gender as a structural role, when we're saying, well, what constraints and enablements is Catherine under such that she's to count as a woman, we're kind of setting our viewfinder really wide. We're looking at all the different spaces, you know, when I'm at home, when I'm on the street, when I'm in work, when I'm, you know, 15, when I'm 34, when I'm, you know, whatever age I live to be, kind of the whole um, across time and space, quite a lot of different contexts. We set that quite right. And that's what I think of a scope. So scope is like, where are we looking? The second variable is what I call breadth. Um, And that is basically how many different types of constraints and enablements are we taking into account? So let me say a bit more about types of constraints and enablements. I think that we can divide constraints and enablements into into some different sort of sorts. So one might be interpersonal constraints and enablements. This is what I can or cannot do based on um, uh, how other people are treating me. Another type of constraints and enablements might be psychological constraints and enablements. This is about like, what do I feel able to and not able to do? You know, there might be some things where, um, suppose I'm in a meeting and actually in this meeting, um, everyone is very friendly to the perspectives of women and they're going to listen very carefully if I talk, but I've been in a lot of meetings where that's not the case. So I feel like I'm not, I'm not allowed to speak in this meeting. I feel like speaking up in this meeting just feels like a thing I can't do, even though if I did it, people would, would, would be, um, receptive. So that in that case, I think I'm under a psychological constraint. So it's a different type of constraint. So breadth is about which of these different varieties of constraints and enablements we are like allowing into the picture, not where we're looking at, but the kind of thing we're looking for. 
Um, and then finally, there's the one I call granularity. This is a little bit more tricky to explain, but I think it's very important because granularity is where intersectionality comes into the picture. So intersectionality is the idea that um, our experiences, including our, you know, the ways in which we might be oppressed or privileged, are never just a function or a consequence of like one aspect of our identity, like because I'm a woman, I have such and such an experience. I'm never just a woman. I'm also white, um, bisexual, various other things besides. And those things kind of interact. It's not like there's, you know, the way my life is because I'm a woman and the way my life is because I'm bisexual that are kind of like completely separate things. They, they are um, intertwined. So gran- granularity is about the level of detail at which we specify the constraints and enablements. Um, and basically, the more fine grained you go with specifying like how someone's constrained and enabled, then that's the more intersectional that'll get you categories like um, white middle class bisexual woman. And the more coarse grained you go, you get categories more like woman or um, white. So just to make that a bit more concrete, if you think about the the meeting that I mentioned, suppose that it's Suppose that so imagine being in a meeting where like a work meeting where it genuinely is quite quite sexist and, and women's contributions are not well received. But women of color's contributions might be really not well received. So it's a bit arbitrary to put numbers on it, but say that a white woman in that meeting, you know, is gonna find herself ignored and talked over like 40% of the time. But a an Asian woman in that meeting is gonna find herself ignored and talked over like 80% of the time. Well, are they under the same constraint? Well, it depends how finely, like how much detail you're looking at, right? Because it's harder for both of them to speak, but it's harder to different degrees. So how, how so if you um, if you pick up on that difference of degree, then you're going more granular, and if you don't, then you're going less granular. Um, and so granularity is the third uh, variable in my um, kind of framework that I have for thinking about this. That's very interesting. Um, and a natural question from that is. Before you do, let me just say that the CEF is one of my short um, shorthand in the book for what um, the constraints and enablements framework, which is the name or label that I give to everything I was saying before about the constraints, enablements and the scope, breadth and granularity. It's not catchy. I'm really not good at uh, coming up with catchy titles for things. So if any listeners have a better suggestion, um, then uh, yeah, please email me. All, all the three variables are varying in themselves and then you can pick and choose um, or they are tools to help you understand different contexts. Um, and, and so the natural question is, how many different ways can you combine these three? And then does that give you a sort of um, type matrix? So like nine different categories, different really big levels. Um, so I guess the first question is, can you combine all of them um, or is there a sort of a very specific way you can combine them? And then the subsequent question is, um, what does that combination give you? Great, great. Both great questions. So on the first one, um, no, it's not a matrix. It's more like I think they're all scalar. So the analogy I use to explain this is if you think of a sound mixing board, um, which is something I don't know very much about, but like I've seen pictures and you have these like sliders, right? So if you think about... Um, scope, breadth, and granularity as being like sliders on a sound mixing board, you can set them at really almost an infinite, well, I guess I guess if they're really scalar, then like an, an infinite, if you can like adjust them finely enough, an infinite um, number of, of different uh, combinations are possible. So in that sense, I think that it's not like a grid where you end up with like nine categories. It's much more um, 
of a of a spectrum type situation in each case. However, I do think that some of the combinations will give you like results that make sense and some of them won't just like with the sound mixing board like some combinations where you crank one thing one way and one thing the other way just like won't sound good um um so one question then is what is the analogy here to sounding good or not sounding good and what it is is it i think it's it's being useful for explaining stuff that we want to explain so suppose you want to um investigate the gender pay gap why does it exist what could we change to have it not exist then I think that there's a particular kind of setting of things that that might be most helpful to you. So you might want to look at something like these kind of big structural kinds, um, I would suggest. So finding like the optimal setting on the of the sliders is about finding the category that lets you like make predictions that hold water and kind of organize interventions that like lead to the kinds of changes that you want so it's quite a practical pragmatic um kind of interest that we have we're not just thinking i don't think we're ever really just thinking about gender categories sort of for the sake of it or in a vacuum when we ask questions you know if if you've ever had the experience of somebody asking what your gender is there's usually a a reason behind it and um and I find this when I'm asked like my sexual orientation like depending on who's asking in the context I might say I'm bisexual or I might say I'm pansexual it kind of depends on like what's in the drop down menu what I think will make sense to the person what I think they're going to do with the information um, and so on and so forth so um, yeah, I think we have this uh, practically engaged interest in these categories and um, fulfilling those interests is, I think, what will lead us to prefer one combination over another. So to answer your question, I think that there are um, you know, infinite possible settings, like com- combinations of these three variables. But I think that the number of categories that we're actually going to want to pay attention to um, are the ones that do some work for us, some explanatory work for us. And I don't have a number for that, uh, but I think it's not infinite. Hmm. So then could you give an example of a category that would be completely useless just for interest's sake? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I have one in the book, but I now can't remember what it is. Um, maybe if you set the... Um, breadth very wide so you could yeah okay so if you set the scope very wide so you're looking at like mm, gender gender related stuff like across all of society and like across people's life courses but then you also set the granularity incredibly high so you want like super amounts of detail but you want it across all of these different contexts I just don't think there's much you can say. So if you want like the absolute nitty gritty of exactly what's harder and easier and to what precise degree in virtue of being a woman, say, and then you look across this like whole spectrum of like contexts and places, I think that there's going to be so much kind of noise in the picture that you won't really find anything out. Whereas I think if you go more coarse grained, then you might find something out. So Sally, philosopher Sally Hasslanger suggests that, you know, different women in different contexts with different intersectional identities. So women of different racial groups, different um, social classes and things, um, you know, have very different experiences. But on a broad brushstroke level, you can say that they're often um, ones involving subordination being kind of um, steered towards kind of uh, lower positions in a social hierarchy. 
being kind of negatively constrained, as I would say. And so that is something we can say. But if you wanted more detail, then I think it would break down at that level of scope where you're looking at so many different contexts. Hmm. So it sounds like if you want to have something interesting to look at, you need it to be not too general that you, as you say, have too much noise, that you can't actually discern anything that's going on. But maybe you also don't want it to be so specific that you end up having a situation in which you don't really have a constraint to look at anymore, or at least maybe a constraint that's not very effective. Yes, I think that's broadly right. And I guess another way to think about it would be to say that there that, that needs to be some kind of harmony between how what the contexts are that you're looking at and the kind of level of detail that you're looking within them. So here's another example. This is a bit made up, but um, I think it's a simplification of some real, a simplification of some actual situations. So imagine there's a bar in a really racist and sexist context. So in this bar, you get... Um, you know, women are not like the patrons. They're never paying for their own drinks. They're always there as a um, guest of a man. But also all the patrons are white and all the staff are black. So if you are a black um, woman, then you're working as a waitress. If you are a white woman, you are like the guest of a white male patron. So, you know, if a woman tries to order a drink, this will be like not a thing she can manage to do. Because either she's a white woman and the white man she's with should order the drink for her because he's paying, Or she's a waitress and why is she ordering a drink? Because she's there to serve drinks, not to order drinks. So if you're like, why can this woman, why can, you know, um, Jane not order a drink in this bar? And we say, because she's a woman. We have really very little idea what's gone wrong there. We don't know until we know whether she's, you know, it's until we know her race. We don't know whether she, in what way her attempt to order a drink was frustrated. So in that context, because of the way that race and gender are kind of working together, the level of generality of like woman is is too coarse grained to get any useful information we need to um be more fine grained so we'll we'll end up what will be informative is to say well well jane can't order a drink because um she's a black woman and black women here are like assumed to be staff um and not to be um being served drinks so it's not just a feature of like which combinations go well together sort of because they match each other. It's also about fit to the world. And depending on what's going on in the world, we might need a certain kind of combo of, of settings in order to like get at useful information in that situation. So it seems that the purpose of your, um, well, I guess the, the framework and, and your thinking um, is not irrelevant to um, um, some sort of practical gain or some sort of, political gain um, and, and it seems that you're trying to give us tools to understand what's going on and then sort of infer a solution to where it should have been um, and so I wanted to ask can this so can the sound mixing board um, only work for race and gender or could it so could this common denominator work for other social kinds as well? That's a question that really interests me. And my answer is that I don't know yet. My hope is that it works for other social kinds. I I think there's something a bit peculiar about coming up with a theory of gender categories or a theory of race categories that doesn't sort of sit within a broader theory about what social categories in general are like. Um, I 
kind of don't want to think of race or gender as like so different from other social categories that uh, that you know we just need completely different I think there would be a lot of questions to answer if you were saying we just need completely different theoretical apparatus and I, I want to know like why why your generalist one wouldn't cut it and like yeah so I, I want to say that this works for other social categories and I, I think that I'd, I think in principle it should right um and certainly uh, someone like Auster thinks that her her account of, of these, um, she calls them conferred social categories because the status is kind of conferred upon you by the other people in your context. Uh, certainly she, she thinks that's a general theory and I, I, I find that plausible. So I would like this account to work as a general theory of social categories. Um, but I think that you can't just go around saying this is a general theory unless you've actually taken the time to test it for a bunch of stuff. And I haven't had that. So this is one thing that frustrates me a bit about some accounts of, um, of social categories is that uh, people only think about a few examples and they might be quite kind of politically neutral examples and then as soon as you take it out and compare it to something like gender or race it, it there are some kind of problems and it doesn't seem to handle that very well so I find that kind of frustrating like so um trying trying to uh yeah play by my own rules I I I'm reluctant to say this is a general um theory because uh I think that would be premature but certainly my aspiration for it is that it's a, it, it works as as a theory of, of social categories much more broadly than, than gender and race. Do you feel like it would be applicable to, so obviously you haven't had time to like fully test this out as much as you would want, so uh, we won't pin you down on your answer, but do you feel like it would be applicable to the context of being bicultural? Because that's what I was thinking about. So I am half Dutch, half French, and I feel like, I move through different spaces in the world in which I might be seen, for example, if I'm with my family, I'm seen as both. If I'm with people that are either Dutch, I'm seen as Dutch, or if I'm with people that are just French, I'm seen as just French, or, you know, and like in my life, I've encountered many different variants on that thing. I feel like it fits together quite well with your theory. So I wonder, do you think that would be applicable? I do. And that's music to my ears that you, you feel like it fits. Um, and I wonder whether another dimension of it that I'd be curious to know whether you feel it fits or not is this idea that there's not only that it matters which context you're in as to how people are relating to you, given this um, sort of in-between status that you might sometime occupy, um, but also that there's different levels on which we could ask this question. Like somebody could ask, like, what's your cultural you know, what's your culture, really meaning to ask, like, what do you feel? Never mind how other people treat you, but what's your own sense of yourself? But also someone could, you know, you could say, oh, I'm Dutch tonight, it, you know, to observe the fact that people that in that context that you're in this evening, people are treating you that way. So that, that there's a um, different levels on which you might talk about it or in which people might ask about it. So my hope is that, um, yes, I think the thing you're saying fits, that's definitely how I would see it. And I wonder if that that other thing that I just mentioned also also fits or, or not um I mean I feel like yeah a little bit because there's definitely I feel like also sometimes a a disconnect between what I feel like if someone were to ask me what do you culturally feel like you're a part of and then sometimes you might zoom out and think like what do the other people like in general at this gathering think of like what part do you belong and that might differ depending on if I'm at a gathering of French people or Dutch people or British people um mm -hmm. so yeah I do think that fits together 
Um, and uh, just to add one other thing is that you could think of a case, perhaps this isn't your situation, but like you could think of a case where somebody had um, a sort of dual cultural heritage, but didn't have dual nationality. So any kind of official system would mark them as one or the other. And you can imagine if, if you know, those were um, uh, different very like, countries uh, with very different kind of access to like migration and different economic, um, different economic regimes and things that that might have really kind of major significance, which one you're marked as um, on like official systems, like where your pa- what your passport says and stuff. Um, so, so that that might be um, quite stark in some cases, that sort of, um, I guess, like social structural level. Um, now I would like to move on, uh, yeah, about a question exactly from a different perspective, um, which is the following. So now that we've kind of established the constraints and enablement framework, CEF for short, um, and talked about the characteristics of different constraints and enablements and how they unify um, a social kind. How do we know which ones unify a social kind? And also how do the concepts of grounding and anchoring come into this? Ah, okay. So I think I think my approach to like, well, you know, okay, so you, you're saying that um, to be a woman in the kind of social status sense in this particular context is about how you're constrained and enabled based on how other people are treating you. But like, how are you constrained and enabled? Like, what are the constraints and enablements that, you know, make you a woman in this, at this party or whatever? Um, that's a really interesting question. And my answer is, is very much, um, it's kind of suck it and see. Like, it's very, very, um, difficult to specify this kind of a priori and I think that a really um uh unproductive way of trying to get at that is to think what do we think of women as being more or less able to do in this context I think that approaching it that way would be really misleading because you could have a context where everyone's like oh yeah women are just as free as men to express their ideas at this meeting sure I would never interrupt anybody just because they are a woman but then actually you get this pattern of um, people interrupting women way more than they interrupt men without having any idea that they're doing that, right? So I think we just have to really look at what is happening regularly, like in a, like regularly. What are the regularities in all of the data points of like stuff that actually happens? So, um, and we might find some surprises, right? Like we might find that there are constraints that characterize um, that, you know, a part of what makes you um, a woman say that we didn't expect um, them to be. Um, now, some things are going to be trivial. Like uh, um, somebody responding to the book while I was writing it once asked me, like, what if there's a particular bar where women get free coffee, particular coffee shop where women get a free coffee on International Women's Day? Is you can have a free coffee on International Women's Day an enablement that like is part of what makes it the case that someone's a woman? Like that doesn't seem right. So I think it's true that there'll be some that are too trivial to play a role in like patterns um, and that are not explanatory. But I think that um, we, we're not going to be very good at spotting which are which, are which in advance so what we need to do is look at the look at the the way stuff plays out and um see what's see what's actually happening um so that's how i think we can find out like which ones are the constraints and enablements where being a member of that kind is a matter of being under those constraints and enablements you know that it's harder or easier for you to do certain things 
And that brings me to this kind of helpful distinction that I, I, I find I find useful that comes from the work of the philosopher Brian Epstein. It's in his book, The Ant Trap. And he kind of says, look, there's a difference between um, the things that make it the case that you're a member of a particular kind on the one hand, and on the other hand, the reasons why it's those things that matter. So one question is, which are the constraints and enablements that being under them makes me a woman in this particular context? Um, Epstein calls that the grounding question because it's about like, well, what grounds philosophical kind of technical philosophical term what grounds my membership in the category woman what makes it the case that I am a a member of that category and then the other question is well why is it those constraints and enablements that um that 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 are doing the work why is that the answer to that first question like why what's kind of holding that in place or anchoring it in place and Epstein calls that the anchoring question so I think that's um a useful distinction here and the constraints and enablements framework is an answer to the grounding question. So that, so, so when I say like it's about constraints and enablements, I'm saying it's constraints and enablements that make individuals members of categories. There's a further question of like, why are those the constraints and enablements that matter? And I haven't fully answered that question in my work so far. I want to say something like it's about the patterns um, that exist that mean that some clusters of constraints and enablements you know mean that the people within them form a group that it's useful to be able to talk about in like theory building and explanation and prediction and I also think that our purposes like the reasons why we want to build theories explain things predict things might be in there as well in fact I think they are in there as well but that's a sort of messy story that I haven't um, managed to tell yet that's maybe something I want to work on next so you might have anticipated the answer to what I'm about to ask and what you've just said it seems that what you're saying is the social kind um, or how we can come to know what the social kind is, it is on what the constraints and enablements are, but that you're also at the same time saying that the other way around, what the constraints and enablements are, it is on what the social kind is. Yes, yes, yes. I definitely um, think, I, I totally know what you mean. And this is something I write about in the book. I have a whole chapter that's um, a bit inelegant, but it was the only way I could make it work where I was just like, here's a list of, you know, potential objections to the things I've said in the last four chapters. And here is my responses to each of them. Like it's a bit of a grab bag. Um, one of the objections is, okay, so you're saying like, you simultaneously want to say, what makes you a woman? Why, why is Catherine a woman? Or metaphysically, what makes it the case that Catherine's a woman? Well, it's that that you know, it's partly say the fact that she um, has a harder time getting people to listen to her in a certain meeting. I must say this is all hypothetical. Um, not not talking about my colleagues at Glasgow at all here. Um, so, but just you know, in this hypothetical meeting, um, uh, that you know, the, what makes Catherine a woman in this? room at this time is that she can't you know it's harder for her to um, get listened to Uh, but also if someone says well why isn't anyone listening to Catherine it seems sensible that you would say like well it's because she's a woman right so there's this kind of potential it might look like a circularity Um, I don't think that's a problem I don't think it's a the kind of circularity we should worry about because in answer to the second question well why isn't anyone listening to Catherine um, I do think that we want to say um, Catherine's a woman. And if you say, well, why is Catherine a woman? 
The answer to that is not just because, you know, because no one's, um, uh, because no one's listening to her. Um, it's about, it, it's going to also include the answer to the anchoring question as well. So it's going to include a story about like what the whole suite of constraints and enablements are, and also why that's a cluster that has explanatory value in this context um, and the explanatory purposes relative to which it has that value. So there's kind of more stuff that comes in. And that's why I think it doesn't end up being a circle that's just like a little closed loop that we should be really worried about. But it is true that I want to say both of those things. I want to say that there's a sense in which we can explain what happens based on the like by appealing to categories and also that fundamentally the categories are constructed out of the patterns in what happens and um, but i guess one one way of putting why it's not a circularity which is not something i said in the book but it's kind of occurring to me now is that when you're talking um, about the categories that's kind of a way of talking about the patterns so ultimately i think it's all really explained by like the stuff that happens it's just we need ways of um structuring and organizing that information so that we can actually like say helpful things in response to questions it's questions like why is Catherine getting interrupted <laughs> um, that that's really good um so following that tidy and concise answer i'm, I'm <laughs> <laughs> it, it's I'm, I'm gonna um sort of talk a bit about what seems to be um the real objection to um your thinking um, so it, it mm-hmm. seems that you're giving a, a really big role to external considerations um, when it concerns a topic about um, identity in, in a big part. Um, mm-hmm. And so it, it seems that constraints and enablements apply to a person and, and then a corresponding um, sort of social kind also applies, um, which... which with seemingly inherent um, sort of characteristics to that social kind. Um, but there is a sense that that's quite wrong. Um, and so mm-hmm. a, a person can only be a person or some sort of axiom like that, um, or the value of a person can only be the value of a person and so on. Um, and, and so by calling them anything else apart from a person, it seems that we're doing an injustice towards them, um, that we are wronging them in sort of a way. And, and a clear example of this would be um, a sort of, it seems that by adopting the, the um, CEF, the Constraints and Enablement mm-hmm. Framework, we seem to be committed to saying that, um, that slaves are really slaves, uh, not really mm-hmm. people, um, or that mm-hmm. there's a difference there. Um, that I, I don't think we're committed to in that sort of way. Um, so right. the, the tidying question um, of, of my little rant um, is, yeah, yeah. Um, how, how would the framework or, or how would your framework respond to these sort of cases of misidentification? Yes, absolutely. And misidentification is a good way of putting it. And I think this is a crucial question. And you can tell I think it's a crucial question because of the, I think, five objections that I consider to the the overall view, four of them kind of share this kind of grab bag chapter. But this one gets its own chapter because I think it's really important. So another way of putting the worry is that this um, 
seems that my account seems to be saying that insofar as the world constrains and enables each of us, which it does, then the world gets to the external world gets to determine who we are. So the world gets to say what gender I have or what race I have. But there seems to be something um, uh, uncomfortable about that insofar as we might want to say that it's um, kind of up to people to say what their own identity is. Um, and you gave the case of slave, which I think is a really, a really good example. So I do want to say that when we have an institution of slavery in a social context and where people really are getting treated in those ways, then the category of slave is real. People really are made into slaves. But that's for me is a matter of social reality. It's a matter of the categories that our social practices have created. It's not any kind of moral status. So there's a mistake going on, perhaps, in some of those cases where people think that some you know, people engaging in slavery um, perhaps think that some human beings have less moral worth than others. That's obviously a mistake and, and that's false. But what what they do when, when they make that mistake is that they create a real system of social categories that exist in the world, those constraints and enablements like they have the power to be in, they have the power to enact those constraints and enablements like that really happens and because it really happens i think that we really do have those categories and that people really are slaves now one reason i think that's quite a good example is because there's there's um, examples you can find in history of people who are fighting slavery like abolitionist societies for example who don't want to use the word slave so i think you you get kind of names like i might not get this quite right but like the society for the relief of like persons unlawfully held in bondage or, or things like that, right? So you get people kind of using workarounds because they don't want to use that word. And I think that that is an instinct that is really, um, really kind of on the money. Just because a category exists in society doesn't mean that we need to use our language um, to talk about it uh, because that might reinforce it. So I have a lot of time for the idea that yes, Slave might be a real category in a society that has an institution of slavery, but nevertheless, you might want to be careful about not using that word, lest you reinforce the mistaken idea that that's some kind of natural status um, or something that reflects some kind of genuine moral difference between people. So I think what I want to say about this is, and I have, I have a another set of theoretical apparatus in the book which we haven't talked about on this podcast very much but basically this is the idea of what I call ontic injustice so injustice to do with ontology which is basically the idea that the categories that get set up in the social world can be really wrongful they can like mm, uh, incorporate injustice the category of slave would be a paradigmatic example if someone's been made into a slave I want to say they've thereby been wronged no one should be made into um no one should be made to count that way. And I, you don't need to know sort of exactly what bad things then happen to somebody to know that they've suffered a wrong, in my opinion, by being made into that sort of being, by being placed in that category. That's what I think of as ontic injustice. So because ontic injustice can happen, um, yeah, I want to say that this is a picture of social categories according the constraint that the constraints enablements framework offers, according to which they can be really problematic and really bad. And I don't think that's a bad feature of the theory. I think that's a bad feature of the world. I think one thing that's bad about the way the world works is that um, unjust regimes of power can really make us into types of beings that um, we don't want to be. So one place that this comes up quite um, sharply, and this is the focus of the final chapter of the book, is in terms of gender. Because our world... Um, 
you know, unfortunately is um, not only kind of patriarchal or sexist, it's also cis-sexist and transphobic. So it also um, oppresses trans people as trans people, as people whose gender um, identity is different from the way that the world wants to assume that they're gendered and based on their genitals at birth. So in that world, I think that trans people sometimes get made into members of categories that they don't identify with because of the way other people are treating them or the way that they're being kind of inserted into social structures. And when that happens, I want to say that that, that really happens, that those categories really exist um, and that that's really wrongful and that we need to be changing the world so that that doesn't happen. So you might then think that that sounds like a problem from the point of view of advocating for justice, because you want to say, no, you know, if someone says of a trans woman that she's a man, they've just made a mistake. What I'm kind of saying is, well, no, that they might not have made a mistake. They might be really, you know, that the world is a way, the way the world is means that that might be kind of technically true. However, to go back to the point about language, um, that doesn't mean it might not be kind of dangerous and perilous in the current political climate to go around saying it like that, right? So in the book, I'm quite careful to talk about people being made into members of categories um, and just kind of slightly distancing language just to kind of um, be a bit careful about these kind of statements. So I guess in the end, what I want to say is that we should be working towards a world where the categories that matter are the ones that are people's identities. Um, Unfortunately, the world we live in isn't that world yet. And in that world, I think various people suffer on tick injustice because they get made to be members of categories that they don't identify with. Um, some people are going to find that unpalatable, but I, I think I have built in sort of tools to kind of explain what's going on there. Um, and uh, it's certainly something I've given a lot of thought to. This sort of um, difference between what people end up counting as um, and then what ought to be happening um, is this built into your framework um, or am I reading it into the framework where your constraints Ooh, and enablement sort of give a language um, that allows us to sort of identify how people count as, count as in different contexts and then also give, uh, so the wanting injustice language gives us a way to say, well, this ought to not be happening. Um, so it's certainly true that the framework is about the framework is designed so that it picks up on what is happening in the world like like all the questions you asked me about like well what makes you know what determines which of the constraints and enablements that, that that play the grounding role so um in that sense the framework is kind of designed with 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 this idea in mind that, that the world in all its problematic or problematicness um does actually create the categories um, the social categories in our social world um so yes in that sense the constraints and elements framework goes hand in hand with that and i think if you had the constraints and enablements framework but you didn't admit the idea of ontic injustice so you were just like well however the social categories are then that's just how they are and that's fine that's just you know we just need to talk about that as it is because that's just how it is um then i think that that could have some um, really politically unhelpful results and I think it would just be kind of weird because you would have to say things like well if some people get made into slaves then they're slaves and that's that's reality so you know you don't want to go around denying reality do you whereas actually any kind of um, political project of any sort especially any kind of you know um, political project that's aiming to counteract oppression is is fighting against a reality because the current reality is very oppressive so there's this idea that kind of um, sort of snowflake, liberal, um, uh, whatever, 
um, are kind of out of touch with reality. But actually, I think what's going on here is that there's a critique of reality that says, well, if reality, um, if you've made a social reality where there's these you know, different categories of people that have different moral worth or that, you know, get you know, can be treated in ways that really violate their sense of who they are, um, don't sign me up for that. I'm not here for that. I want that to be different. I'm going to push back against that. I'm going to resist that. Um, Sally Haslanger, the philosopher Sally Haslanger's book, one of her, her, her big book of, of collected papers is called um, Resisting Reality. And I think that's exactly uh, what we need to do. So for me to have this idea of this is how social categories work, but to close your eyes to the fact that that, that means they can sometimes be really horrible uh, would be kind of weird. So they sort of go hand in hand, the constraints enablements framework and the idea of onto injustice. I think we need both. And I think in order to respond to this idea that like, hang on, the constraints enablements framework seems to be saying some kind of odd things about who people are, then I think you need the idea of ontic injustice to be like, well, well, yes, but that's a prelude to a critique. And I also think, and very crucially, I, I think you need this point about language that says like, look, like this is a story about what categories exist in the world. How we talk about those categories is a further question. I haven't given specific prescriptions for it in the book, although you can probably kind of, um, you know, get something about what I what I think about it but I think it's a detailed question it's a question for philosophers of language to look at in detail and it's going to be extremely contextual but um just because I'm saying that there are such and such categories doesn't mean it's automatically fine to go around um you know saying things about people um uh based on their category membership that um, might be at odds with their identity or might expose them to various kinds of um harm in our current political circumstances so that's that's really important to me that that was very clear in the book so I think what we've just talked about is a really good example of how we would kind of integrate your ideas into our current discourse when we talk about how we talk about people and how we try to combat oppression and how we think about those things. Um, so then I guess kind of zooming out, I would like to ask, how would you like to see the ideas we've just talked about? So the constraints and enablement framework, ontic injustice, how would you like to see those ideas integrated into our current discourse and into like our current toolkit to combat oppression? How would you like to see those things come in there? Ooh, I mean, that's a that's a really interesting question. In some ways, I kind of think it's not for me to say, right? I think for my, my job is to offer the tools and if they're useful, people will do stuff with them. And I'm, I'm hoping that people will do stuff with them that I didn't expect and couldn't have predicted. And that's kind of the most exciting thing. Um, but if I have a hope for it, it's a hope that sometimes when people um, seem to be having a disagreement where they're saying, well, gender is this, no gender is that. Um, but there's a lot, a lot of common ground and there's, um, you know, political, um, the ingredients for working together politically are there. Hopefully this framework might offer people the way, a, a way to say, oh, okay, we're, we're kind of both right. Gender's many things. Um, the question is like, what do we need to talk about for the particular thing that we're doing right here and now? Um, so I, I guess I would hope that it might give some people some tools for um, avoiding some kinds of disagreement that that might seem important, but turn out to perhaps be a, a blockage to political action. And uh, maybe this view could can help to show that, that that's some um, disagreements that we maybe don't need to have or that we're not actually having in the way we think we're having. That's one thing I, I hope for it. But um Mostly, I've just tried to write it in a way that avoids unnecessary technicality. Um, it's still quite technical in places. Um, but, uh, and yeah, just to put it out there and see what people make of it. So yeah, I'm interested to see how that goes. Well, I'm 
for our listeners, we'll have a link to Catherine's book below. Um, so if you want to check it out, go and click on the link. One final question um, to tie the whole episode up um, would be, um, what would you recommend um, to me and Tinkine, to our listeners, um, to either read um, or go and look out for um, to to get a better view of, of what you're talking about or to get a better understanding of the world around us? Wow, good question. So I think that, um, I mean, one philosophy book I would certainly recommend is Auster's book, Categories We Live By, because I, I've, I've learned a lot from reading that. I think it's a very interesting exploration, not only of gender and race categories, but all of a, a whole plethora of different social categories. And it's very clear and accessible. So I do recommend that. But I think the most important thing that I would want to suggest is that I think if you're going to do philosophy that relates to these topics, for example, like race and gender, and these categories that are, you know, features of our lives, very complex features with complex histories, then it is important to look maybe a bit beyond the boundaries of what you might find kind of shelved in the philosophy section at a a library. Um, Because I certainly learned a lot from reading books in um, uh, like trans studies, for example, so there are a couple, there's, there's maybe one book in particular, there's an interesting book called um, Histories of the Transgender Child by Jules Gill Peterson. And it looks at different ways in which um, transgender children have been conceptualized and the kinds of experiences they've had at different points in history. Um, and uh, at um, uh, also the way race has played a very big role in that. And it's just really, really interesting. I guess if it's anything, it's a history book or a trans studies book, but I found it really fascinating. Um, So another book, another book in a sort of similar area, although um, less history and more, I think, cultural studies is uh, Black on Both Sides by C. Riley Snorton, um, which I do recommend. I actually found it quite difficult in the sense that it's it's very dense. It's got a lot of ideas in it. Um, I had to spend a lot of time with it before I could sort of get my head around um, the ideas, but I think it was time really well spent. And I think this says more about me than it does about the book. Um, and uh, sort of really about the ways in which our ideas of race and our ideas of gender, um, uh, especially sort of looking through kind of the experiences of trans people of color, um, really kind of make each other that you can't really um, explain what gender is without looking at what race is. And that if you're looking at people who are kind of unstably or um, uh, you know, positioned in, yeah, um, perhaps uh, subversive ways with regard to gender categories, that you, you also need to look at race at the same time. I think Snorton says at one point in that book, being black in the diaspora may be a trans experience. Um, so there's some really interesting ideas in there. And a third book is... Um, in the Wake on Blackness and Being by Christina Sharp, which is a really interesting study of the kind of psychological afterlife of slavery in the United States and the kind of life of racial categories um, in terms of positioning people as um, disposable disposable beings, among other things. So those are very um, rough and ready summaries of really complicated books. Uh, but they're very interesting books. And I think my main point is that like none of those are maybe um, uh, books that you would you would necessarily find shelved like under like philosophy narrowly conceived, but they're certainly very philosophically rich. And I certainly couldn't have written the philosophy book, which I think I've written, which I think would, would very much be shelved under philosophy um, without engaging with them. 
Um, and I think that that's, that's something I've, I've really come to think is vital when we're thinking, um, yeah, in social philosophy, basically. I think in social, if you're interested in social philosophy, um, emphasize the social and see who else is writing about the social and it won't just be philosophers. And I think, I think that that's, um, that's been fruitful for me at least. That's great. Um, and with that, Katrin, thank you so much for joining us today. You're very it's welcome. Pleasure. Um, and we'll see everybody next time. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure talking to you.